please take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, and we'll be starting at verse 11. Now, as we come to this text, we have been through the tribulation. Some of you probably feel like this sermon series is the tribulation. Um, Wow, it is really heavy, isn't it? As we've looked through these texts and we see the terrible things that await those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's frightening. Uh, We look at the terrible plagues and judgments that have been outlined for us. We look at the rays and prominence of evil. And when we look into the text and we see these things, it's overwhelming at times when we look at it. We feel uh, almost discouraged when we look at it, if we aren't careful and we aren't putting it in the right perspective, that this is God's purpose that is unfolding for the earth. But finally, when we come to chapter 19 and verse 11, we see what we have long anticipated, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ returning, putting an end to evil, establishing His righteous kingdom on earth. Finally, we're here. And so as we come to this 11th verse of the 19th chapter, what we want to see first of all is this, the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now as we look at verses 11 and 12, we see some descriptions of this event when Jesus Christ returns, and let's look at it together. In verse 11 it says this, then I saw heaven opened. Now think about the context of this. Earlier in the 19th chapter and in chapter 18 and even part of the chapter 17, we've seen this building alliance of the wicked, the beast, the false prophet, all of the leaders who have signed on to their agenda to resist God, to hate God to persecute any followers of God. They have all gathered together as a great army to withstand the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He returns. It's a picture of this dark army hurling accusations against God, blasphemies against God, hating God and anyone who is associated with God, and they have gathered as a battle to withstand the returning Christ. But then when we look at that 11th verse of chapter 19, what do we see? The Word of God says, then I saw heaven open. You know, if you use your imagination, here is a dark world. This is a place that has become even darker, not only by the darkening of the sun and the other plagues and other things that have been brought upon the earth, but by the people themselves. You know, if you've ever gone into an area that is noted for wickedness, for evil. When you go into that area, you feel this sense of darkness. It's something that you can feel in your bones as you enter the area. This is what God is describing right here for our world, but then heaven opens up and the glory of God pierces the darkness. All of that darkness that has been festering and boiling looks and they see heaven itself open. And then look at what the Word of God goes on to say. And behold, now in our world, behold doesn't mean that much. 
But in John's writing, that's like, hey, stop and look. This is something that is worthy of our attention, something that we stop and we look at. It's an exclamation point. And so what he's saying is, heaven opens and behold, the one is on the white horse, this Lord Jesus Christ whom we love and whom we serve and who is promising to return. He comes and he's seated upon this white horse and he is called faithful and true. I love this part of the passage. The Word of God is sharing with us that Jesus Christ is coming again and His appearance will be on a white horse. Now, what's the significance of a white horse? When we look in John's time, when an emperor or a general had a great victory, they would come into the city that they were a part of and they would lead a procession and they would be seated on a white horse. That's the image that is being shared with us in this text. Jesus Christ is victorious. And when he returns, he will demonstrate that victory by being astride a white horse. An indication to all that I am coming as the conquering king. When we think about Jesus' first advent, we think of the way that he came into this world unassuming quiet, meek. But when Christ returns, he comes as the victor, the king, the one who leads in procession the forces of heaven who are in victory with him. That's the picture that we have here in this text of what Christ will be when he returns the second time. And then notice the titles that are associated with Christ. First of all, We find in that 11th verse, he is called faithful and true. Faithful. Think about this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the deliverance, the consummation of the covenants and the promises of God. When Jesus came in the first advent, he fulfilled the promise of a Messiah, but only partially The completion of that promise of Messiah is fulfilled at Christ's return when he establishes his kingdom on earth. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. And when he died on the cross in our place, he fulfilled the law in such a way that we now have the opportunity to know God and to experience a relationship with our God. So he was faithful in that. But when Christ returns, he is faithful in keeping the promises of God to overcome evil, and to establish his kingdom, his power, righteousness here on earth. He is the faithful one. And we know that he's coming again because of that faithfulness. But look at what else the text says. He is true. When we think of Jesus Christ being true, we think in terms of him, yes, honoring his word. You know, when we look in the scripture, There were promises throughout the gospel from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ that promised that he was coming again. For instance, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. This is Christ's promise that he's coming again, and we find it in each one of the gospels, specific promises that Christ is coming again. Here he is true to that word. 
He is faithful and true in keeping his promises. This is the Christ that we look toward. This is the Christ that we will reign alongside because he is faithful and true. Look at what else the scripture says. Not only is he faithful and true, but in verse 11 it goes on to say, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now again, when we compare the second coming of Christ with the first coming of Christ, when he lived among us and when he died at the hands of sinful man, this is starkly different. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, will set things right. He will be, first of all, the righteous judge. You know, when we look at some of the judgments of man, we're disappointed by them, aren't we? If you know the right people, if you have the right kind of money, righteousness isn't applied equally. And it's frustrating when we look at that. We become discouraged and we wonder if righteousness has any place in this world. When Jesus Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom on earth and he judges righteously, he will take the standard of God and without being a respecter of persons, he will apply it even-handedly toward all men. Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. And by the way, what we'll see is as he judges those who have stood in rebellion against him, he is righteous in the way that he deals with them. He is dispensing God's justice. And that's why it opens up into this next statement. He comes in righteousness and he makes war. Now, how is war something that we picture with a gentle, loving, meek Jesus. Here's how it works. He is also the righteous Jesus. And for those who stand against him, for those who rebel against him, for those who say we want to wipe out God and his followers, Jesus responds to them with the wrath of God. He crushes their rebellion by making war against them. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that is further described in verse 12. Look at this. With eyes that flame like fire. You know, when we look earlier in the book of Revelation, we have seen this description of the Lord Jesus Christ before. Leave your finger there in the 19th chapter and turn back, back to chapter 1, verse 14. In John's initial description of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he saw him in that heavenly vision, he describes Christ as this. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And then look at the next statement. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his judgment, in his discernment, in his ability to see to the very core of what is right and what is wrong, is described as having eyes that flame like fire. This is the Lord who is returning to establish his kingdom on earth. And what John is sharing with us is the truth of this. This is that same Jesus, bodily returning to earth to establish his kingdom. 
Notice the next part of this passage goes on to talk about how he has many regal crowns. It says this, on his head were many diadems. Now, the term diadem may be a little foreign to us. It's the idea of a kingly crown. It is the designation that this is the person who reigns, who rules, who is in charge. In John's culture, when somebody saw a crown, that's immediately what they associated with it. What the Word of God is telling us in this text is, when Jesus returns, He returns with many crowns. In other words, His authority extends to each corner of the earth. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He returns as such. Look at what else the text tells us. In addition to these crowns that are on His head, now, this is a part of the text that looks a little different, but it says this. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, we look at that, and first we're told he has a name that nobody understands, and then later we see that he has a name that is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's being communicated by this? A couple of commentaries had some really helpful thoughts on this name that no one understands. First of all, God is transcendent. In the ancient world, a name would often discuss or describe a person's character or nature. For instance, Lumpy would be somebody who, as you might guess, had a lot of lumps, okay? Here, what the Word of God is telling us is there is not a name that can describe Christ. He is transcendent. He is beyond understanding. Jesus Christ comes with a name that even if we were to express it, we wouldn't understand. Secondly, in the culture in which John lived, often people believed that they had power over an individual by knowing their name. They could employ their name in incantations or statements against the person whose name they knew. It was a superstition of John's day, but what God is telling us by Jesus having this name that no one knows but Him, He is supreme, ultimately powerful. He is over all. So whatever that means, it's communicating the uniqueness of Christ at His return. Something else we see in this text. We find that the Word of God goes on to talk to us about, and I have somehow really messed up my slides. Uh, he is robed, should be the next one, somehow that didn't make the cut. <laughs> but he is robed in a garment that reveals his judgment and authority. This is verses 13 through 16. So please look at these with me. Look at verse 13. In verse 13 it says this, He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on their white horses. Now, what the Word of God begins to share with us is the appearance of Christ. And remember, this is Factual, but it's also symbolism. It's communicating something. And what we see first that is being communicated is he is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. Now, the question that we ask when we see this immediately is, whose blood? 
Whose blood is this talking about? And I think there are a couple of possibilities, so I'm going to share those with you. The robe dipped in blood could be his own blood. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood. The blood that he shed brings all of those people who are with him to the forefront. They are there because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the blood on Jesus' robe symbolizes those who have received Christ and are with him. But you know, the blood not only washes those who are followers of Christ clean, but it also judges those who stand against Christ. So another aspect of this robe that's dipped in blood is perhaps the understanding that this is the blood that is to be shed by those who have assembled against Christ. They are going to be condemned and judged, and their blood will be shed as they stand against Christ. They either accept the blood of Christ that was shed for them, or in rebellion against Christ, they shed their own blood as a part of the judgment that stands against them. This is a powerful statement of what they have to face. Look at what else we see in this text. It talks additionally about not only this blood that that was shed, but he is called the Word of God. Now, Word of God, I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ is called the Word of God in John's Gospel. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, a very familiar passage to us, but look at what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then the Scripture goes on to say this. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and look at this. The darkness has not overcome it. How apropos to what we see right here in the book of Revelation as he is identified as the Word of God. As the Word, he came into this world. The world rejected him. Darkness has gained prominence, but it cannot overcome him. He is Christ the King who has returned to establish his kingdom on earth. This is who Jesus is. This is the Jesus who is coming again. This gives us such great hope. This passage of Scripture is sharing with us these images of Christ. And then look again at that 14th verse. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on their horses. In addition to Christ coming back as the conquering king, what do we see? We see the armies of God with him. Now, who are the armies of God? When we look in this text, go back to chapter 17, verse 14. In Revelation chapter 17, the 14th verse, those who are arrayed in white are identified for us. The scripture talks to us about those who have been standing against God. And here in chapter 17, it says that the people who are in, clothed in white are coming back and they are there to establish their rule with Christ. And you know what? I think I got that 14th verse wrong. It was 19.8. Sorry about that. Look at 19.8. 
It was granted to her. Now, this is the church, right? This is in the context of this passage as it was talking about the church. And notice what it says. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So who are those with Christ that are returning? It's the church. It's those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, who have been raptured, who have been in heaven with Christ, returning with Him to reign with Christ. That's the image of this passage of Scripture. This is what we have to look forward to at the return of Christ. This is as sure as Christ is. All of these truths are describing what will be. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Something additional. We call this a war. As man has assembled in all of their strength that they can muster to resist Christ. But here's the image. You have this massive army on earth. A returning Savior as heaven opens up and Christ descends on the white horse. And out of his mouth is a double-edged sword. And he strikes them all with a word. Not much of a war, is it? The idea is all it takes is a word from Messiah and they're mowed down. This is the foolishness of withstanding God, of standing against God. They are so distorted by their evil and their wickedness that they can't even grasp who it is that they're rebelling against. But in a word... They are cut down. The scripture describes this sword as something with which he strikes down the nations. And then additionally, by overcoming the wicked, he rules. And as he rules this world, there will no longer be a set of rules for one person and a set of rules for another person. There will be the justice and the reign of Christ there won't be the need for diplomacy where we have to consider what this other nation is doing. Terrible things will do if we respond to it. It will be Christ ruling with an iron rod that says, no, stop it. And they will stop. This is the Lord who is returning. You know, when we look at our world and we see the mess that it's in, and we see the nations and the peoples who do horrible things. To see them continue in their wickedness is disheartening. It's frightening. When Christ returns to reign, He will reign justly and absolutely. No one will stand against His truth and His righteousness. And then one of my favorite parts in the passage. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, just in case can't, anybody can't figure that out for themselves. <laughs> on the robe of Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and on his thigh. Now, think about why it would be on his thigh. When you ride a horse and you have a robe behind you, everybody sees what's behind you with the robe. But on the thigh... As you're seated upon a horse, that's prominent. 
they will see it there as well. Everyone will see this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ has always been King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But now the position will become the experience of the earth. And they will all see Jesus for who he is. Now that's exciting when we look at this passage and we see the wonderful things that are coming as far as Christ's return. And we see the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this as followers of Christ, we're excited about it. We look at it and we say, oh man, I can't wait until Christ reigns and sets things right. But there's another group that's described for us in this text. And what we find here is the result of rejecting God and choosing evil. When we pick it up at verse 17, we find that this rebellion against God is going to result in destruction. Notice what the 17th verse says. Then I saw the angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to the birds that fly overhead, come gather for the great supper of the Lord, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the, king of the kings of the earth and the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now, when we look at this, we think, gross. You know what he's saying? An angel comes down and says to the vultures, have at it. Free lunch. But this isn't to gross us out. You see, in the ancient world, when you died and your body wasn't properly disposed of, that's a curse. And so, what this is communicating to those who stand against God and rebel against God, this is the beginning of your curse. This is the beginning of an eternity where you will be separated from God and under the curse of God. And it begins with your body. When the vultures that are already circling get called by the angel to go down and feast. This communicated victory by Christ at His return over evil. Before you get to the place to where you feel sorry for those who are going to be a vulture feast. I want you to think about this. When we see a mass murderer brought to justice, do we feel for the mass murderer? Especially if one of your family members was a victim. Do you feel sorrow for that? Or do you look at that and you say, finally, justice is served. This person perpetrated evil and needed to be stopped. That's what's going on here. God is stopping those who have cursed his people and cursed him. And they are now receiving the curse that they have demonstrated toward others. Look at what else we find in this text. In addition to those who have accepted the mark of the beast, have signed on wholeheartedly to rebel against God and to kill his people, we find this. There will be retribution 
for those who have done evil. Look at what the text goes on to say in verse 20. It says here, the beast was captured and the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. Now, look at this. End of verse 20. The two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, this is unique. The Antichrist, the false prophet, we've seen them described here in the book of Revelation, the wickedness that they've done, the deception that they have perpetrated upon the earth. It's awful. But you know, God created a place of eternal punishment. And that place of eternal punishment is what we generally think of as hell. Here it is called the lake of fire. And this lake of fire was created for the beast and the false prophet. Ultimately, it will be the place where Satan is a captive. Where Satan will spend his eternity. This lake of fire is for all of those who have rejected God and persisted in following their own course, their own path of rebellion. They are thrown alive into the lake of fire. And by the way, this is a place of eternal torment, not a place where you are annihilated, but a place where you experience torment for eternity. Look at chapter 20, verse 10. little spoiler alert, this is what's going to happen to Satan, but it says this, and the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Now, look at this, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Now, this is a thousand years after what is described here. And they are still in torment a thousand years later, and will be from that point evermore. This is the result of their rebellion toward God. This passage of Scripture is talking about the ultimate defeat of evil. Final part of the passage. We've seen the major players. We've seen the people who have stood against God. We've seen the Antichrist and the false prophet who have stood against God and deceived the people. But ultimately, the one responsible for inspiring all of them, Satan. Look at the first three verses of chapter 20. And here we find a description of what happens to Satan. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be re released for a while. What is going to happen to Satan? For a thousand years, while Christ reigns on earth, Satan will be bound. He will be thrown into the abyss, this deep pit that is the holding tank for the fallen angels. For a thousand years, 
He won't be able to stir up trouble, tempt people, deceive people during the reign of Christ. This is put in here, first of all, as an encouragement that Satan will be restrained. And ultimately, as we see later in that 20th chapter, he will be condemned to the lake of fire. But it's also a statement of Christ's authority. You know, sometimes people have the mistaken understanding that there's, there's good and there's evil, and it's kind of up for grabs which one prevails. You have a light side of the force and a dark side of the force, and one of them will eventually prevail. That's sort of the idea that has gravitated into our culture. But you know what the Scripture teaches us? not even a contest. God prevails. God wins. So what does this mean for us? We've been looking through this and we've been seeing all of these truths, all of these teachings about man and his wickedness rising into prominence, rebelling against God, God crushing the rebellion. You know what I think it's teaching us in our day right here, right now, there's one of two kingdoms I can invest all that I have, all that I am in, the kingdom that stands opposed to God or the kingdom that is run by God. And I can't have it both ways. I can't in some things serve the kingdom of this world and in some things serve the kingdom of God. I have to make a choice. Which kingdom will I serve? What Revelation does is bottom line for us the end game. Follow the kingdom of this world, and this is where it ends. This is where they're headed. This kingdom that has prominence now is a kingdom that is subject to disaster and destruction and defeat. But if I choose to follow the kingdom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I return with Him to reign. In a world that is run by justice and love and grace and all of the things that we look at and we say, these are the things that I want to experience in my life. This is what the King of Kings, Lord of Lords does. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Which kingdom do I choose? And by the way, this isn't just a verbal, intellectual choice. I have to look at my life and I have to say, which, which kingdom do I demonstrate myself to be serving? By my actions, by my attitudes, by my thoughts. Am I buying in to the kingdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Or am I buying into a kingdom that stands opposed to Him? That's a question you can only answer for yourselves. But let me encourage you with this. It's a question worth asking. And deep evaluation of our lives is a responsibility that we need to take in evaluating that. I would encourage you to ask yourself that very question. And then change, repent, do whatever is necessary to make sure that you are pursuing the right kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it gives to us all that Jesus Christ 
is coming again to rule. God, let us be those who are followers of his kingdom, not followers of the kingdom of this world that is subject to darkness, that is guided and directed by the wickedness of men. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.